Welcome to Everything is Arbitrary, where I investigate the random whims that shape our lives and even our fundamental perceptions. I'm Erin, a writer based in Canberra, Australia. Today's show is about colour. Colour words are often among the first words we learn in our own language, and actually in any new language you might pick up. Colours help us identify things. A stop sign is red, our study notes get highlighted with fluorescent hues, uh, we have a personal relationship with colours, most of us have a favourite colour or a colour that makes us feel pumped or relaxed, and they have rich connotations. White is clinical, medicinal, pink is fun and feminine, red is very lucky in some contexts, and a warning sign in others. But these connotations haven't always existed, and a colour as we might know it hasn't always existed, and isn't uniformly perceived and labelled across the world. Let's start with the rainbow, which illustrates the visible light spectrum. So when we talk about the visible light spectrum, it might be helpful to call to mind that image of a triangular prism with a beam of white light hitting into it, and then that beam being dispersed into a rainbow. So like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album cover, or, you know, I'll include a gif on the show notes of this episode in case like that reference is obscure to you. A prism is just a piece of glass or some other transparent material that's been cut precisely and is useful for analysing and reflecting light. Each of those colours are produced by different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. Colour isn't itself a thing, it's wavelengths that hit the eye and then the brain interprets them to give them the impression of colour. Depending on context though, and as some visual illusions demonstrate, um, the dress is one that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, the way our brains interpret colour is often at odds with what wavelengths are actually being emitted. So colour is a thing that we're constantly creating in the act of perceiving it. In a weird way too, different things appear to be different colours because they absorb different wavelengths, while other wavelengths bounce off them. So as Cassia Sinclair points out in her book, The Secret Lives of Colour, the tomato's skin is soaking up most of the short and medium wavelengths, blues and violets, greens, yellows and oranges. The remainder, the reds, hit our eyes and are processed by our brains. So in a way, the colour we perceive an object is precisely the colour that it isn't, that is, the segment of the spectrum that is being reflected away, which is a pretty neat thing to think about. Tomatoes are every colour except red. As well, you can get light wavelengths beyond the colours that humans can perceive and interpret, like ultraviolet and infrared wavelengths. And the colours exist on a spectrum. So there's really no clear line um, between, say, red and orange. There's a point where the wavelengths could be interpreted either way, or we could just have a fight <laughs> over what, whether you'd call that precise hue red or orange. If you grew up in a, in a context like mine, you might have been taught the Roy G. Bibb acronym. The rainbow has seven colours, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And, you know, this is a valid way to break up the colour spectrum. Uh, but what is indigo as separate to blue? Um, this is a question that lots of non-artists have trouble answering. Isaac Newton, the British scientist and pioneer of many things, including research on light, introduced the colour indigo in the 1660s. Some argue that what he called blue, we'd actually perceive as light blue or cyan. 
and then indigo would be what we'd call blue. But it seems that the human eye doesn't really perceive the difference between what Newton defined as blue and indigo and violet, violet being purple basically um, very well. Isaac Asimov, the sci-fi writer and scientist said, it is customary to list indigo as a color lying between blue and violet, but it has never seemed to me that indigo is worth the dignity of being considered a separate color. To my eyes, it seems merely deep blue. Nowadays, people whose job it is to study human color perception generally say there are six colors and indigo is not one of them. So why did Newton define seven colors? When he was doing his work on prisms, it had already been observed that you can make a fun rainbow out of, out of shining a light through a prism. What he did that was cool and different though, was realize that the white light he was beaming into the prism wasn't creating the rainbow so much that it was made up of the rainbow. So if you put the colors of all these different wavelengths together through a prism, it will make white. Light doesn't really behave like paint. If you mix a whole bunch of paints together, it'll, you'll just get a mess. But when you mix together the visible light spectrum, you get white. People now speculate that it was important for Newton for ideological reasons that there be seven colors that together make up white, rather than saying there's six, or in fact a whole spectrum of colors that aren't easily discretized. And spoiler alert, these reasons were probably arbitrary. One theory was that Newton's religious beliefs motivate him to find the seventh color. Seven is just a more biblical number than six. As well, if there were seven colors, the rainbow could be analogous to the musical scale, which in Western music also has seven defined notes, A through G. It would be awesome if nature were nice and symmetric like that, if everything kind of nicely divided into seven just as in seven days of the week, seven classical planets of the solar system, them being the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. But, you know, different cultures have different musical scales, and as I covered in my time episode, a week actually doesn't have to be seven days. And we know that there are more than seven planets in the solar system, and that neither the sun or moon are included. And there are also different ways of dividing up the rainbow. According to the Guardian, the Bassa people of Liberia divide the rainbow into two colors, one word for red slash orange slash yellow hues, and the other for all green slash blue slash purple hues. The Shona of Zimbabwe see four, one is red slash orange, one is yellow slash yellow green, and one is green blue, and then purple, which is represented by the same word as for the red orange end of the spectrum. It seems that it's just Europeans and Japanese people who see seven colors of the rainbow. The rainbow excludes the two shades, white and black, which can be understood as lightness and darkness. There's a whole big debate about whether white and black are colors or not, which I don't care about and I'm not going to get into, um, but I will put a link about it in the show notes. With the various hues we have in the rainbow and the lighter and darker shades we can make, the possibilities of visible colours are considerable. Most of us can see something like around 1,000 levels of light to dark, 100 levels of differentiation between red and green, and 100 levels of differentiation between yellow and blue. Multiplying this together, we're able to discriminate between something like 10 million different colours, um, although, interestingly, a lot of monitors on computers and TVs will actually feature more colours than that, so they should feature more colours than we can really see. Levels of what we call colour acuity, or how many different colours you can differentiate between, is variable through the population. You can actually take a test to see where you sit 
um, somewhere between very high color acuity and total color blindness. Pantone, which is a company that specializes in color, requires workers to be able to discriminate between precise colors very accurately. So they have about 2000 spot colors with exact ink formulas for every single one of them, each with its own name and number. And the system helps people in professions like graphic design and art precisely what they mean when they talk about different colors. Um, and as an example, Coca-Cola Red is Pantone number 484. Starbucks Green is Pantone 3298. But despite this level of color discrimination, accuracy, standardization, there is a real question over whether we all see colors in the same way. If I talk about red, for instance, how do I know that the picture in your head is the same as in mine? How do I know whether what we both call red actually looks the same? After all, a fair proportion of humans we know have different perceptions of colors. A lot of people are colorblind. It affects something like 1 in 12 men and about 1 in 200 women. The most common type is red-green color blindness, but even in that category, there's a few different conditions. The most common is where the photoreceptors that are responsible for picking up on green wavelengths in the eye are less sensitive to those green wavelengths and are instead more sensitive to red wavelengths. It's harder for people with the condition to tell the difference between red, orange, yellow, and green. Color blindness can make identifying certain colors difficult, it can cause confusion, uh, but each color will appear in a certain consistent way. So if I say red, someone with color blindness will have an image that comes to mind and it probably doesn't look like what I think of when I think of red. Usually people do realize that they're colorblind when they're a child, perhaps because they're tested for it, perhaps because someone asked them to choose between the red paint and the orange paint and they don't really know the difference. But depending on the type and severity of colorblindness, some people don't really realize that they have it until they've reached adulthood. Everyone can point at something and say it's red, but that doesn't mean that we're all seeing precisely the same thing. It's the problem of subjectivity. There's never really an easy way to see the world exactly as someone else sees it. This subjectivity problem was rather memorably clear back in 2015 when that infamous internet meme caused people to argue about whether a picture illustrated a blue and black dress or a white and gold dress. So if you don't remember it, there was a picture taken of this super ugly dress which was in fact black and blue coloured and some people did think that it was black and blue but actually most people who saw the picture, including me, thought that it was white and gold. And there were tons of arguments and it was all on Twitter and all those social media things. But why do we see this same thing differently is the question. And it's the question that actually stumped people who study vision. Um, psychologist Pascal Wallish wrote for Slate that scientists had felt reasonably sure how color vision and perception worked. And yet they couldn't figure out why different people saw different things when it came to the dress. He writes that now we have a much better idea of what may have been the reason for the varied perceptions. People's perceived colour is also informed by their perception of lighting, and the image of the dress taken on a cell phone contained a lot of uncertainty in terms of lighting conditions. Was it taken inside or outside? This matters because it implies artificial or natural light. Was the dress illuminated from the front or the back? This matters because if it were backlit, it would be in the shadow, otherwise not. In the absence of these clear lighting cues, different brains made different assumptions about what they were seeing. So our brains are often doing a lot of work when it comes to color recognition, which gives rise to differences in our perceptions. 
And it means that what we're seeing isn't always matching up with the wavelength that's being emitted by something. There's some evidence that how we see colour has either changed over time, or maybe it hasn't, but the way we talk about colour has. In studies of ancient texts from around the world, colour is mentioned, but perhaps in ways that don't make a lot of sense to modern folk. Blue isn't really mentioned. In Greek texts, the colour black is mentioned most commonly, then white, then red, yellow, green, and purple hardly mentioned. And then there's references to things like green honey and wine dark seas and violet sheep, which is confusing. Greek texts also describe the sky and the sea as bronze. It made the British politician William Owen Gladstone wonder if the ancient Greeks were colorblind when he was actually investigating these texts in 1858, which is a theory people have taken up on, but seems unlikely. Instead, probably something more interesting is going on. Maybe a few more interesting things are going on. For one thing, ancient Greeks sorted colors rather differently than I or you have probably been taught to. For us, different colors exist on a spectrum of shades and hues with a range of different commonalities and differences. So like, pink might be like lavender, in the sense that they're both light colours and are reddish, but lavender is more bluish. In ancient Greece, all colours would be sorted between white and black. So yellow would be near the white end of the spectrum, green and red near the middle, maybe purple near the black end. These distinctions would have more to do with the amount of colour there seemed to be, rather than the hue. Another explanation is that ancient Greeks didn't see much blue, and so didn't need a word for it. Until the early years of the 1800s, the best source for blue dye was lapis lazuli, which is a rock that's found only in Afghanistan and parts of Pakistan, making the colour largely unavailable in the man-made world. Of course, they had sky and the sea, maybe some blue birds and flowers, but the sky changes colour over the day. It's often not blue. And actually, the sea does shimmer in a way that's not dissimilar to bronze. I'm still not sure about this, like, red wine sea, but still. Perhaps they were using the word bronze more to describe the ocean's textural quality rather than the colour. If you think about it as well, before the widespread use of pigments and dyes in manufacturing, maybe it doesn't really make that much sense to talk about an object's colour as independent from other elements of its appearance. So if you take silver, for instance, it's really grey, but it's also shiny. So it's not really a colour, it's like a texture plus a colour. If all the things that you see around you that are grey are also silver, it wouldn't really make that much sense for you to distinguish between grey and silver. There's no need for the concept of grey. And so you're missing a colour word, but certainly not your capacity to see that colour. Partly the way we think about colour relates to very modern inventions like dyes. If you have 10 t-shirts that are all identical in size, fabric and texture, it then only makes sense to distinguish them by colour. But most of the natural world doesn't have this uniformity where only one element that meaningfully separates two things are their different colours, except maybe some varieties of flowers. In a manufactured world, colour is a lot more important as a means to identify and distinguish between different objects. In fact, some colour words, like scarlet, um, originally were names for the fabrics they appeared on. It's just that scarlet, which was an expensive woolen cloth in the medieval period, was often dyed red. And so the word began to mean red rather than describe the fabric itself. Colours also aren't universal. The Korean language has a different word for yellow and yellow-green. Russian and lots of other languages distinguish between light and dark blue as separate colours. English has these words too, like lime green and cyan and navy and so on. 
But these are seen as variations of the essential colours, not essential themselves. So cyan is a type of blue. We don't generally teach those sorts of colour words to children. English used to not have a word for orange, which might also be why people with orange hair are called redheads. There's also languages in Australia, Papua New Guinea, and other parts of Asia that don't have an equivalent word for colour as a concept. You cannot translate the word colour in some of the languages that exist in those regions. But just because colour isn't a defined concept doesn't mean you can't see it. It just means that when you're describing the world around you, you're probably relying on different concepts to do it. And when you're thinking about the world around you, colour might not be as terribly important. You don't miss that concept or feel a gap because you have other, just as rich concepts to invoke when you're seeing and thinking and talking. So research into the World Prairie language, which is spoken by First Nations people in parts of Australia's Northern Territory, that there are references to colour in loanwords from English, but generally that sites are described in ways that are less focused on colour. Instead, for example, there are words to describe a part of the landscape that looks conspicuous or different, which may be because of colour, maybe not, but it's the conspicuousness that's important, not the colour. There are also words for things in the landscape that are shiny or glimmer in the distance, and for things that are striking because they're patterned or otherwise not uniform. So, for example, things with stripes or flecks. And there's words for where conspicuous things are alongside familiar things, like, for instance, a new plant that is growing in a place the person observing it knows really well. Colour can be part of these observations, but not always centrally. But even where colour isn't the most salient thing about what you're seeing, there's still, like, a lot to see. Anglocentric and Eurocentric researchers have had a hard time understanding this over the years. Um, when they've asked people, say, in Walpuri, what colour something is, they have to rephrase the question, because there's no direct translation for the word colour. So instead they've asked a question more to the effect of, what's it like? And because colour is so central to English and European answers, they've assumed that the answer is a colour word. So if the response is smoke-like, then they interpret it to mean grey, or light purple, or dark blue. But the respondent could actually have been invoking other aspects of smokiness, rather than the colour itself. Colour words are super useful in lots of contexts. They help us figure out what we're seeing. Um, it can be interesting, though, to think of the ways that relying on colour descriptions might also make us skirt over other details. So if I see a snake, I identify it as yellow, I might not be attuned to its distinctive markings, parts where it isn't yellow, which may be a problem if certain markings indicate whether or not that snake is poisonous, for example. Or if I see the ocean and call it blue, I might forget to notice that within that blueness there's a shimmering movement, maybe even some bronze. So colours have different connotations. Colour theory is the study of using colour, which crosses over disciplines like psychology, pop psychology, marketing and design. If you've ever taken a quiz like, what colour are you? Chances are the author was informed by colour theory. The Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung was into colour theory. By the end of the 1920s, he associated different colours with different psychological functions. Red for feeling, yellow for intuition, blue for thinking, and green for sensation. He thought that the psyche, consciously or not, uses colour to distinguish between different psychological processes that could be used as a therapeutic tool. Stemming from this work, colour theorists suggest that certain colours have different meanings and evoke different moods for biological or psychological reasons. 
that might be the case. And certainly there's some evidence to maybe suggest that. There's also many examples where the connotations attached to colors are arbitrary and different between people changing over time. The idea of pink is for girls and blue is for boys is one of the best examples of arbitrariness. So in 1918, according to Ladies Home Journal, blue had been seen as a dainty feminine color that would be appropriate for girls, and that pink was a more decided and stronger color appropriate for boys. Other baby color advice at the time didn't really focus on gender at all. So for instance, that blue was flattering for blonde babies, pink for brunettes, blue for blue-eyed babies, pink for brown-eyed babies. And in fact, for centuries in the West, babies, regardless of gender, wore white dresses for practical reasons. It made the baby easier to change, and it could just be bleached clean. The dress could just be <laughs> bleached clean when needed. It wasn't until the 1940s that toy manufacturers decided that pink was for girls and blue for boys. It's not clear why this change happened, but the evidence suggests that it was probably a gradual change. Then in the 60s and 70s, with second wave feminism peaking, people started to prefer gender neutral clothes and decorations for their babies again. What solidified this idea of pink is for girls, blue is for boys, was prenatal testing in the 80s. Suddenly people were able to find out their baby sex before they were born, and so began a fad of outfitting the baby's room and preparing for baby's arrival by buying a whole lot of gendered stuff. Manufacturers also realised that wealthier parents who'd already had a son, say, would buy a whole new set of everything if it turned out their second child was a girl. This trend may even be further on the rise now with the advent of gender reveal parties. So a couple has like an iced cake or something, and they cut it in front of their friends and like for Instagram, the inside colour will reveal the expected baby's gender. Still pink for girl, blue for boy. This would have been confusing for people 100 years ago for a wide variety of reasons, but conflating pink with femininity and blue with masculinity would be on that list. As an aside, um, according to a survey I found, amongst women, like men, blue is the most popular favourite colour. There's not actually a huge difference in colour preferences among adults, although women tend to prefer purple more than men and tend to dislike grey and green a little more. These preferences are probably not biological, they're probably related to the ways that colour is gendered rather than any substantial difference in the way people of different genders see or perceive different colours. We also know that colour preference can relate to exposure, so colours you see more you're more likely to like. And chances are women's specific marketing is more likely to feature purple, marketing targeted to men may also well be more likely to feature colours like green and grey, although who knows. In a slightly more scientific way, there are times when people want to harness colour theory for therapeutic aims, even to impact health outcomes. Uh, clinical design, like the design of hospital spaces, is an example of where people might like to use colour theory for public health. Among reports and research into colour therapy, people seem to agree that colour makes a huge impact on our psyche. But what colours bring about what effects is the major point of disagreement. According to Evidence-Based Design Journal, which is the name of the journal, um, the literature contains significant contradictions about colour associations. Some see yellow as mood-enhancing, while others argue it is unsettling or is to be avoided because of its association with urine. Some authors assign emotional meanings to particular colours. Some authors claim that red has qualities of energy and passion, yellow supports optimism, 
Green provides unconditional love, blue promotes loyalty, and violet has spirituality. Although these outcomes are unsubstantiated in the literature, some suggest that cool colours make time pass more quickly, others say time is overestimated with cool colours, some say highly saturated colours are more appropriate for elderly patients than pastels, and strong colours are good when muscular effort or action are required. Others argue that intense colours may be too controversial and trigger unpleasant associations in the mind. The list goes on. The broad point is that people make a lot of claims about colour, but these claims often contradict other claims and are rarely backed up by research. All of this would be very helpful to know if they were anything more than guesses or an expression of the author's own relationship with different colours. They forget that colours can be very subjective, might not be perceived and seen in the same way by everyone. They'll have different connotations to different people, especially if they have different cultural backgrounds. They also might trigger specific memories or feelings that aren't broadly predictable. Some things we do know is that it's useful in clinical settings for the floor to be a different colour than the wall in order to help with perception. So um, people who might otherwise struggle to see how far they can walk before they hit a wall um, really benefit from having that contrast. Uh, one colour that has been researched for its psychological and physical effects is this specific shade of pink that's been dubbed Baker Miller Pink. So in the 70s, the US psychiatrist uh, Alexander G. Schaus claimed that this particular shade made people less aggressive. So according to his experiments, when young men he tested looked at a piece of pink cardboard for a minute, they performed less well on strength tests than people who looked at blue for a minute. Institutions got so excited by this finding that they painted prison cells and housing estates, like, in this colour. They used it to upholster bus seats and even for, like, visitors' locker rooms and sporting venues, which incidentally led to a rule that both home and away locker rooms had to be the same colour. Of course, from further studies, it's not really clear that Baker Miller pink has much of an impact at all. It's possibly humiliating for grown men to have to sit in a room that's painted like a small girl's bedroom, but there's very little evidence that the colour itself has a calming or anti-aggression effects. Another colour that's been studied for its physical and psychological effects is red. So different studies have found that waitresses actually get higher tips from men if they wear red, and that soccer teams with red uniforms are more likely than average to win championships and finish a season higher on the ladder than other teams. In the 2004 Athens Olympics, they found that combat sport competitors were slightly more likely to win bouts if they wore red. So they won 55% of the time instead of your expected 50% of the time. In casinos, people with red chips are more likely to keep betting than people with white or blue chips, things like that. As the BBC explains, we actually don't know why red has these effects. Maybe it's because culturally red feels like a more dominating colour when people wear it, they feel more dominant, and likewise, competitors might be more intimidated, and their performance might drop because of that. There's also a theory that when people turn red, it's a sign that they have good circulation, it's a signal of health and fitness that impacts our psyches. This might as well make us act differently and make other people treat us differently. But all of this is a far cry from claims that certain colours will help people recover from surgery or can massively affect health outcomes. 
Elizabeth Allen, who works in UX design, debunks the pop psychology around colour in a presentation I'll link to in the show notes. She points out that the language of colour isn't universal, but context-dependent. Yellow on a banana evokes a sense of, yay, this is edible, whereas on a wasp evokes more of a cause of concern or fear. Yellow on a flower might evoke vibrancy and life and happiness. In a puddle on the floor, probably something closer to disgust. In a study she talks about, um, a website boasted that they got more sales when they had their Get Started Now button appear red instead of green. Does that mean we should all make our buttons red on our websites in order to get more sales? Well, if you look at the website itself, which had a lot of green accents, making the button red helped it stand out. Presumably if the website had more red accents, green would have stood out more and would have gotten more clicks. So it doesn't always make sense to think about colours in a purely abstract way, because this isn't usually how we encounter colours. And in general, um, she concludes that there is really very little research to support that certain colours reliably elicit certain responses. In terms of the way colour is used in art and design, it can be useful to think of pigments as a type of technology. And as with all technologies, the availability of certain resources and particular advances affects what people can do creatively. This is something that Cassia Sinclair's book goes into really well, so I'd recommend that if this topic interests you. So as anyone who's done art at school will know, you can get new colours by mixing together existing colours on your paint palette. But eventually, if you keep mixing, these colours will get really murky and lose their luster. The reason why goes back to what I was saying earlier about wavelengths of different colours. So each pigment absorbs and reflects back particular wavelengths. And so if you mix together too many different pigments, your mixture will be absorbing more wavelengths than it reflects back. So the mixture will look brown or black. If you're trying to make a specific colour by blending lots of constituent colours together, there's a point where it's going to start to turn murky and awful. It's generally better if you can get the colour you're after with a single pigment or with as few pigments as possible. So the tendency to either accept the colour limitations you have, or the drive to make more colours, are both big parts in making art and informs art history. Early artists had to use pigments that were available to them, mostly made from things from the ground, like clay rocks, from the ashes of fire, from plants, from insects. Uh, this was happening at a very early time for humans. We can trace pigments back to at least 350,000 years ago. There's evidence as well of more involved manufacture of different pigments. So you find those, for example, on artifacts from ancient Egypt. And there were new developments in colour through the centuries. And a real rush towards developing new pigments and dyes from the time of the Industrial Revolution. Sinclair dates the proliferation of, of ready-made pigments from relatively late in the 1800s. So before that, artists had to create their own colours. Part of the job, then, of being a painter would have been using your mortar and pestle to make the pigments that you wanted to use, perhaps following an existing recipe or inventing your own. And then, depending on how you made those colours, you had to know how the different chemicals you were using would interact with other pigments and how they degrade over time as well. Or you and your painting could also be subject to toxic chemicals. Lead turns up in a lot of pigments and... Getting rid of lead paint remains an issue today in lots of places. But anyway, to be a painter, you basically had to be something of a chemist as well. 
Or, alternatively, you can buy colours from people who made their living as colour men. And yes, colour man is an old-timey job that people had. But it also actually still exists today as a rather more obscure profession. So back in the day, you'd have to be really careful to find a reputable colour man. Some of the compounds they sold were pretty scammy, and the mixtures could be unstable, reacting badly with other colours on the canvas, or the canvas itself, or just using, losing their vibrancy over time. So as different pigments become available, what's involved in being an artist and what you're able to express and capture changes over time. If you've ever been to a gallery that orders paintings historically, you might have seen a room with like medieval paintings, say, which often take on quite glum tones. They make use of quite earthy colours. One of the major painting techniques at that time was egg tempera painting, where the pigment is mixed with water and egg before it's applied to the canvas. Then after that you might get to the room with the Renaissance and Baroque paintings, which to me look quite a lot more dramatic, with more lively colours. And it's because in the 15th century, egg began to be replaced by walnut or linseed oil. And this led to slower drying, more versatile paints. The colour palette also expanded, like a better availability of different types of blue, which have historically been a rare and pretty expensive pigment type. And then there were just more tones you could achieve. The colours artists had available to them clearly influenced their output. Green pigment has an interesting story as an available technology. One of the key ways of creating green, as you probably know, is mixing yellow and blue. But there has historically been some aversion to mixing blue and yellow substances together for a couple of reasons. So in medieval art in general, there's not a lot of shading or not so much mixing of pigments because it was seen as kind of morally suspicious. Philip Ball talks about this in his book Bright Earth. So mixing was thought to promote conflict, while pure hues like gold and ultramarine helped like God to shine through the painting. Mixed colours represented a corrupted view. It's kind of a weird mindset to fathom, um, and not necessarily applied uniformly, but mixing colours was also associated with alchemy and alchemists, people who were interested in doing occult things like turning regular stuff into gold and finding recipes for immortality, um, like Nicholas Flamel in Harry Potter. Alchemists tended to be mistrusted. There were also some more practical reasons that people didn't like mixing pigments. One being if you aren't mixing pure primary colours, the results can get really murky very quickly. Um, so your green might be quite ugly. Another is that in the clothing industries, guild boundaries were so rigidly enforced that people who specialised in dyeing garments blue and black were literally not allowed to work with red and yellow dyes. So in some countries, making green was something you could be fined and exiled for. The invention of oil paints then made it easier to mix colours and it also happened to be more culturally acceptable at this point to mix. So boundaries relaxed a bit and so artists' palettes began to get more hues like green, which they could use to reflect the greenness of the world around them. And then in the late 18th century, more greens were discovered in chemistry and thus more greens could be painted. Another story about pigment and colour as technology comes from post-World War II Netherlands. An artist and art dealer, Han van Meegeren, was arrested for selling an early Vermeer work to the Nazi Hermann Göring. When this was discovered after the war, it was a big deal. The penalty for this crime was potentially hanging, 
But Van Meegeren maintained that he hadn't actually sold the Vermeer to Goring. Actually, he was a hero in some ways because he'd sold a forgery to the Nazis. He noted that his forgery was very good, but one inconsistency was that he had to use a blue pigment called cobalt to render the forgery. Cobalt was not available to Vermeer. It hadn't been invented until 130 years after he died. There's some evidence that Van Meegeren may have been a Nazi or a Nazi sympathiser. Though, it was nonetheless found to be the case that he'd supplied Goring with a forgery, and so he was innocent of that. He later did get sentenced to a year in prison for a different forgery, though. We can see how colour is a technology and that expression in many forms of art is contingent on the availability of that colour. That's another episode of Everything is Arbitrary. You can find show notes, social media, and other whatnot on the website, everythingisarbitrary.com. Thanks.